The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Hi, I'm Zach Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is Todd Sharp. Welcome. Thank you, Zach. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. All right. So, uh, you you grew up in Cleveland? I did. Cleveland, Ohio. Home of the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. And uh, what kind of, you know, what kind of home did you grow up in? Happy? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did grow up in Happy. I'm a musical home. Yeah. I have uh, two brothers and a sister. And both my parents were musicians. They're both gone now. Okay. What my kind of music did they play? My father was a guitar player and my mother's a singer. Uh, they, they were jazz musicians. Yeah. My father was, uh, and, and also a, a uh, Django Reinhardt aficionado to the max one of you know probably four or five guys around the world when i was growing up who was like you know where where i was maybe a Jimi hendrix freak well my father was a Django reinhardt freak and and collected records uh participated in in uh, uh putting together a comprehensive discography uh, had a collection of Django stuff from 78s to demo tapes, every record he ever put out. You know, he was a Django nut. And, uh, you know, I could talk about that for a, for a well, while. I don't know if we want no, to. No, that's, that's, that's impressive it's, because it wasn't, it wasn't like there was a, a lot of information out there. So you really had to be very much into Django to know, to have, you know, you know, 78s or uh, other things that he played on. And then, yeah. Is, did he go as far as actually owning like a Selmer guitar? He did. Yeah. He had a Selmer McAfee guitar. He traveled uh, to France many times, or a couple times, anyhow. As a matter of fact, you know, uh, along those lines. So he, uh, you know, had these. There's a couple other guys. There was a guy in Chicago. I think there was a guy in Holland, and they would talk and exchange. You know, if one of them found a tape or or, or whatever, they they send to each other. And uh, he uh, knew Django's son, Babique. Yes. He, uh, I, I went with him on a trip. My sister, he took my sister and I, when we were young kids, probably uh, maybe I was 11 or 12. And we went to Paris. Uh, we met Babique. We had lunch at Charles Delaunay's house in a, a village called Chantilly near Paris. They co- they made us French onion soup. This is the guy who produced the Hot Club of France. Wow. My, both my parents then recorded a like a demo with Babique played on it, and Louis Vola, the Hot Club bass player, played. And Delaunay produced the sessions for Verve Records. My mother sang. My father played guitar. Django's son played guitar, and they cut a record for Verve, which they decided not to release, as it turned out. But so that's kind of how deep into Django, my, so I, and, and literally I grew up, you know, I mean, the turntable was always going, you know, it'd be like, you know, that's how he'd get us out of bed in the morning to go to school, you know, he'd crank Django up. We'd all be like, ah! So, so how, it, it seems like you almost would have avoided the guitar. Well, it, what's kind of sad in a way is that I sort of avoided Django. Okay. You know, like I couldn't play a one Django lick. Right. Everybody else I know in the world, like probably would go, like, 
Really? You never picked up on one thing? You know, because I was, you know, I, I, you know, I was, uh, at that age, I was trying to figure out how the Rolling Stones got that sound. Yeah. Or, you know, Chuck Berry and, and uh, you know, Freddie King. Yeah. Django was kind of like, not quite registering with me yeah. in, a, in that way, but yeah. it certainly does now. But uh, anyhow, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, it was recently Django's birthday and it was on one of those snow days we had. We were all stuck. And I wrote this thing up just, I don't know, because I had some time to do, I couldn't do anything else. So I started to think about it. And, and so I think that Django needs better recognition. He was also a very interesting cat. I mean, he was a real trailblazer. He was a gypsy. He lived with, you know, in a in a traveling caravan mm -hmm. like gypsies. He was in a fire. Yes. Thing caught on fire. These two fingers on his left hand were welded together. This is probably like when you listen to Django play, it's amazing stuff. Yes, it is. Two fingers, folks. Yes. Only two fingers. Always. Mm -hmm. He used this as a cording thing, but it was a deformed sort of stump. He didn't really play, you know, his solo stuff. But I think Django was like the first guitar hero. That's where I'm going yeah. here. He's he, actually, yeah. Django was the first guitar god. Yes. He sort of brought the guitar to the forefront in, let's say, modern music, right? In the early 40s. Very much so. Uh, to a, a, in a way that no one else had ever done. He, he was a hero to both Chet Atkins and Les Paul. Well, uh, you know, like I said, my dad was a guitar player. Yeah. And he used to tell me, like, so when I started to play, you'd never hear a guitar. He said, "My, you know, my father would call me over to the radio and go, mm -hmm. hey, Fred, there, I think there's a guitar in there, you know? Yeah. It was a rhythm instrument, really. Right. Unless we're talking about, you know, classical guitar mm -hmm. or lute music, you know? Right. It never played melody. And it wasn't ever really featured, like, say, in those days, trumpets were. Mm -hmm. you know, trumpet was a big lead instrument in, in this era, Dixieland and jazz and so on. Uh, so that's where kind of Django sort of said, you know, actually I got, you know, he was doing this thing, the guitar is out front. Mm -hmm. And plus he was just blistering amazing. Every time he touched a guitar, he was a phenom, you know. So, so what made you actually pick up the guitar? Was it just because it was around the house and your dad was playing it? But what made you pick it up? Well, uh, I think in truth, I was a drummer first. Okay. And, uh, you know, the old man was just not going to get me a kit. You know, we're talking, you know, I'm 10 years old maybe or something. I had a snare drum and a cymbal. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I took lessons and I would practice and read the stuff. And, and you know, it was kind of like, I think I've, I don't know what else to do with the cymbal and the snare drum, mm -hmm. except rudiments. I need a kit. And my best friend had a kit, so I eventually went, well, I guess I'll just play a guitar then so we can have a band and meet mm -hmm. girls. Yeah. So I said to my father, I'm going to play guitar. And uh, he took me to the music store the next day, and he got me a Tysco Del Rey. Nice. He threw down for $100 for me. Yeah. It had, I remember it had flat-wound black strings. And those pickups uh, with the big square magnets on them? I don't know. I don't, need, I don't yeah. remember whatever happened to that thing. But that yeah. was my first guitar. 
and you know, and I, I think I was 11. Yeah. And that's when I started to play and I just kind of picked it right up. I, I know my, my father, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he was pretty smart, you know, to the point where he just, uh, he kind of saw that I was up and running on my own. You know, I remember he always would say, well, you know, I showed him how to hold a pick, you know, and he kind of learned the rest himself. Because, you know, my old man was was one of those, you know, or, or slowed down, you know, like a, an accompanist. He was a real jazzer, he played big, gorgeous, beautiful chords that moved with every quarter note. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was going, you know, how do you do? You know. And he would listen to me try and do that kind of stuff and just go like, he's fine, yeah. you know. And plus, I don't need, I, you know, we're in, we're in different worlds. Yeah. But they kind of came together in certain ways. And uh, he certainly was uh, a, a big influence on me. You know, uh, the Beatles, you know, Beatles and the Stones and Chuck Berry got me into guitar. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, my old man was a very good guitarist in Cleveland and, and, and was kind of the guy that people would call for different work of all kinds, you know. Maybe Broadway shows would come through town or, uh, I don't know, uh, anybody, you know. Uh, and, and if they need, had a call, uh, call for a local orchestra, you know, my, my father uh, often did that work. And he started to throw it to me, which was funny. The first professional gig I ever played. Uh, so at the time, the record Classical Gas was a big hit. Yes, Mason Williams. Mason Williams. This is probably 69, maybe, I'm thinking. Yeah, 68, 69, around there. And uh, he played in this orchestra with this, it was the Al Russ Orchestra. Al was a great guy. And uh, and so he, he, Al told Fred, my father, you, you got to learn Classical Gas. We're going to put it in the show. And my father said, I, I can't play it. My, my son can play it. And, you know, so he came home and said, uh, you're going to play with Al's orchestra up at this shopping center next Saturday. And uh, you got to play classical gas. And I, I was like, I can't, play. you know, I, I can't play it either. That's like fingers picking and all mm -hmm. kinds of chords. And and he sort of went, you can do it. Rehearsals Wednesday, you know, and that was my first gig was when I was 12. And I, I have it in my scrapbook at home the El Russ Orchestra at Severance Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, and I'm a featured artist on classical gas. On my then, I think at that time, I had a Univox hollow body guitar. Nice. I moved it up a notch. A notch. And what, what did you get paid for that? Do you remember? I have no idea. But yeah. I think I was encouraged to join the union at that point. Okay. And I probably did. <laughs> or get, get you early, get you young. Yep. They got <laughs> me early, got me young. <laughs> When did you start playing with acts that had, uh, you know, major label deals? So what was your first major act that you played with? Well, that would have been uh, Hall & Oates. Okay. So how did you, how did you get that gig? That was, uh, it was because of your hair, rise my hair. And you had a fedora and a beard. I don't think it was the hair. Okay. Time. Okay. So it was a little bit of, uh, I knew somebody in, in okay. so basically, my girlfriend's sister was roommates with a girl named Sarah Allen right. in Philadelphia. They flew right. together. They were stewardesses. And that was Daryl Hall's girlfriend. Turns out to be Sarah. 
the yes. infamous Sarah. Yeah, Sarah Smile. And she would talk me up, Yeah, you know. And I think uh, she got through to him. And so one day, Hall & Oates came to play in Cleveland at the Agora, which was a big rock and roll club yes. back in the day. <coughs> I was playing downstairs in the bar called The Mistake. And, the, and these guys were playing. I, I was working at a record store at the time. I, I was aware of them. They had, I think, two records out at that point. So would they have had like Sarah Smile and-, and No, that wasn't out yet. Uh, She's the, Gone? That wasn't out yet. Okay. Or, or actually it would have been out, but it was, it yeah. didn't do anything. Okay. That was, uh, so anyhow, you know, they were this, uh, I, I listened to them, I thought they were very good. Uh, their first record was very folky. You know, mm -hmm. when I first heard it, I went, well, these guys are like folk guys. Yeah. And I'm, I'm Freddie King and Hendrix and- Yeah. You know, I'm playing- Electric Blues. blues. Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, uh, they were in town, and I, and I so I went upstairs to meet him, and I gave him. I was in a band at the time called the Case of E.T. Hooley, and we were maybe going to get signed to a label. We were pretty good. Uh, we so we had a demo, and and I gave them a copy of it, and I don't know, like the, I just got a phone call one day from their office, and they said, Daryl and John want to know if you come up to New York to audition because they're going to do a couple of shows. And, and this is kind of interesting, I, I think it is, because so at that time, they probably had three records out now, and, they, and none of them were sticking. Mm -hmm. They just, you know, so uh, they had their fourth record, and their, and their situation was uh, they had two gigs. And so I, they said, if you want to audition their, this, their management office, you know, we're going to send you the new record. There's five songs if you'll learn them. And you have to come up to New York and, and audition. So I said, okay, yeah, I'm going to do that. So I did that. And, you know, it was a cattle call audition. And I got there and it was at SIR on 54th Street in New York. I'm staying at a hotel. And I'm like, oh, my God, every 20 minutes, you know, guitar players are walking out. And some of them are well-known guys. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not getting this gig. You know, but it was very nice of them to invite me. Yeah. So anyhow, I went in and played, and it went pretty good. And um, and 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 above all, they just knocked me out because, you know, they had did, did this you know evolution thing. Their first record was very folky. The second was very R and B, Philly soul. The third was uh, kind of I don't know what it was. It was weird. And this was their fourth album. And it was really cool. And uh, so I'm play, playing these songs with them, and they are amazingly talented guys. I mean, like, I've never worked with anybody this good. You know, they, they sang great. Mm -hmm. They knew what they were doing. They obviously wrote really great. Uh, and, and they were just kind of like this duo kind of ball of talent and energy and you know, I was kind of like, these guys are like a, a different level that I, I'm not even aware of. So anyhow, they, they, they said, we're not sure. We stay another day. We stayed over. We did it again. And then they hired me. And I was like, wow, they hired me. You know, called my dad, said, hey, I, I got the gig. So um, they said, so here's the deal. We have two gigs. They're in England. We have a new record company, and we're doing one night at Ronnie Scott's. It's this famous club, mm -hmm. just for the record company people. And then we're we're playing in a theater in London because apparently we have a fan base there. And so, and that's the gigs. And after that, who knows? 
So we go to England uh, about 10 days later. You know, it was like we rehearsed. We, we you know, shedded real hard in, in, uh, in New York. We worked up a 90-minute show. We went to London, and we played at a place called the New Victoria Theater. And it was, like, sold out. And it was also packed with, like, rock stars. You know, like, almost, not everybody, but people were there. It was constantly like, Bowie is here. Oh, gosh, Bowie's here. Guys from Steely Dan are in town. They're here. You know, it was like, wow, you know. Yeah. Anyhow, England came out to see Hall & Oates, and, and we pretty much killed it. And it was, you know, it was a good show. And then we played the thing at Ronnie Scott's the next night. And so, as I remember it, the next morning, Daryl and John were on the cover of all the English music trades. You know, we did kill it, and, and they were, that was kind of like when it all broke loose for them. Mm-hmm. It really did. It just like went bang. And certainly in the UK, they were like the darlings of the UK. So they booked a UK tour, which we were going to come back and play. And we went home. And uh, then uh, a station in Cleveland, as it turned out, coincidentally, was playing the B-side of their single on a black station, which was Sarah Smile. And that was their first hit in America. And that's when things like happened for them. And of course, you know why. Because me, I was in the band. Yeah, of course. No, in truth, it just was like a thing where it was such a great uh, thing for me, you know, because I had the, you know, the luck and the timing and probably some talent. But mostly I walked into a thing at the perfect time (laughs) because it was like, okay, we're going to go play a gig. And that's about all we got. And then it exploded. And there was, you know, we toured almost endlessly for two years. They had hit after hit. And these guys would like go into the studio and they'd be like, oh, we're going to go do our new album. And they, and they had a uh, producer, you know, they were, this was a touring band. Uh, And their producer was a brilliant guitarist producer, a guy by the name of Christopher Bond. Okay. Who just was, played beautiful stuff, invented great lines. And so mostly I would copy Chris's stuff and do it live and, you know, add to it a little bit because we'd stretch out. And it was a good band and it was a great two years because it was just like, you know, being in on the ground floor of, of, uh, of, of, of these two really talented guys who were finally getting their due, uh, their fourth and fifth albums. And, you know, they just cranked out hit after hit. Right. And uh, so the end of this little uh, story is that about, I don't know, two or three years ago, uh, Guthrie Trapp, who I know very well, is playing with John Oates, who's starting to do stuff separate from Hall & Oates. Right. And he uh, comes in one day, walks in the shop, and he says, hey, man, I've been working with John Oates, and he just gave me this to give to you. And it's a, I think it's five or six CDs, compilation package. And he signs it on the front of it and says, you know, yeah. you played your ass off, John, you know, or something. And I mean, I would maybe bump into those guys over the years because this is many, many years ago. Right. And so on the first disc, because it's a really nice set with a booklet and a story behind every song and all Mm -hmm. that. It starts in their early first demos. And then at the excuse me, at the end of the first disc is five tracks from the New Victoria Theater in London, October 1975. When you played with them. And that was our first show. It was the first yeah. show I played with them. Yeah. I didn't know it was even 
recorded. Yeah. And uh, so it was really kind of a special thing. And I put it on and it, and it actually was pretty good. I think this was something John had stuffed away in a drawer. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was like a two-track mix. It was done. It wasn't mm -hmm. uh, multi-track or anything. And it's really pretty good. It just was a cool thing to like, and this is, you know, at that time, you know, almost 40 years later. That's a great memento. It was yeah. really kind of a neat, neat thing because, you know, yeah. other than playing amazing shows, and there's a lot of, uh, of uh, video, particularly uh, from Europe, because we, we did a lot of European touring and TV, and live TV, yeah. uh, but I didn't, I never recorded anything with him. There was always Christopher Bond was like, the guy was so great and he produced their records, you know, right. he was like their guy. So uh, it was nice to finally have a little memento of, okay, I'm, I got, I'm on a Hall and Oates record. It's the first show I ever played yeah. with him, as a matter of fact, you know, and it's pretty good. Yeah. And, and a cool, cool thing to have, you yeah. know, kind of wrap it up finally yeah. and go, yeah. So what was your, uh, from, from some of the footage that I've you know, been able to find, uh, Looked like you were you playing an SG? What what was your what was your rig at that point playing with Hall and Oates? Yeah, Hall and Oates would have been uh, my SG. I, I had gotten into an SG, yeah. probably Pete Townsend, maybe yeah. a little uh, influence. From Could have been. And they were such light, fun guitars to play. Yeah. Uh, mine uh, had a neck that would never stay still. It was mm. a constant tuning nightmare. I finally. I finally gave up on it, but anyhow, yeah, I played an SG with Hall Notes, and uh, yeah, on the on the gear front, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing too. Yeah, because I think I I joined their band right, and I'm playing at that point an SG and a Super Lead 100 with this slant cabinet, you know, and I'm playing in blues bands and bars, and I used to turn my cabinet toward the wall, mm -hmm. you know, so it would be because I mean, and, and it was a Marshall, right? So then I go and I bring my gear up to New York to start rehearsing. And after about two rehearsals, I'm kind of like, this uh, Marshall isn't really, it's not, this isn't for this band, you know, it wasn't really fitting that vibe. And so Music Man Amps had been out probably for about a year. And me and John got in a car and went out to some store in Long Island. I think it might have been Sam Ash, actually, when it was just one store. And we plugged into the new and, um, and innovative Music Man amplifiers that had master volume controls. Mm -hmm. And we were quite uh, taken with them, so we each bought one. And that's what we used. Yeah. Mainly because they had master volume controls, yeah. which was a big innovation yeah. in 1975 and, or six or whenever that was. Yeah. And they sounded pretty good, too. Yeah. Did you use any kind of pedals at all at that point, or did you just straight into the amp? You know, I think it was, I, I used, you know, an echo unit, uh, and I might have had a little phase shifter on now and then, the old maestro. Yeah. Perhaps. I definitely had an echo. Uh, as a matter of fact, I used two, I think I used two music bands. Okay. And one was just for the echo. That was an innovator. So. Even from the okay. early days. So did you have a dry signal going to one amp and just the delayed signal to get a fatter sound? Yes. Uh, I think, well, here's what it was. I was playing a memory man at some point, okay. which I thought totally ruined my tone. So I eventually went, well, if I just plug it into another amp, I can still have my tone and have the echo out of one amp. Yeah. 
because I sort of needed that echo for certain things we would do and effects that they had and all that. Uh, and it's uh, sort of a double-edged sword because most of the recordings that, you know, like this stuff pops up on YouTube, live TV, whatever it is. And uh, I hear this sound that I'm getting, which is awful. <laughs> because they're, they're, they have the one amp up too loud. Because my amp, my regular amp is probably loud enough in yeah. the room, I'm sure. I don't know, me, you know. Yeah. And the mix is live to TV. And, uh, and the echo is probably not very loud. So, you know, my straight guitar is never, it's like this. Like when I turn on the echo, it's like, oh my God, he plays a thing and it goes, patate, patate, patate. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Way too much echo. Yeah. And when I first heard these things, I thought, God, how did that happen? I couldn't, I wouldn't have uh, had it that loud. You know? yeah. And then I, I remembered I used to use two amps. Yeah. And so, anyhow. So, uh, so hollow notes, so uh, did, you know, how did Hall and Oates end? How, you know, what, what happened next? Well, uh, for me and them, you mean? Yeah. I fired them. You, you know. fired them? Yeah. That was, was, that was, a, was best it was enough. They had to go. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. they had enough of you. They, I had enough of them. You had enough of them. And That's what I meant. No, they, uh, they you know, uh, they were, you know, very much, Daryl and John were, were, were really evolving guys, you know? Yeah. Matter of fact, they were always like, by the time the record was out, they were kind of already into a whole nother thing. Yeah. And I think uh, we had gotten a new bass player in the band, Kenny Passarelli, who I always loved. Kenny worked with uh, Joe Walsh's Barnstorm and Stephen Stills, Manassas. Yeah. And then Elton John. Elton had like his different band from the D. Murray and, and uh, Nigel Olsen guys. Yes. So Kenny was in the Elton band and uh, he came to Hall and & Oates and then the rest of the Elton band came to Hall and & Oates and ah. I was out. Okay. So that was kind of like, yeah, we're making a change. Yeah. Like, ah, okay, I'm moving to California. Yeah. So you moved out to California and what was your first gig out there? Uh, uh, Bob Wilch. Okay, so former Fleetwood Mac. Who had yeah. been in Fleetwood Tart. Mac. Yeah. And that was uh, interesting. I uh, knew somebody that I met from the Hall Notes thing who put my name in. Said, well, this I know this guy, and he lives here now, and you guys need yeah. to call him. So I got a message on my machine, and I couldn't quite make it out. I thought it was Bob Weir. And they said, we've got you down for 5 o'clock tonight at SIR at stage 6 or something. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I called them, thinking it's Bob Weir, and they said, uh, well, we thought you'd already been called, but anyhow, you're scheduled for five tonight. It's Bob Welch. And I was like, yeah, I'm a big Fleetwood Mac fan. Always have been from the first album, yeah. Peter Green, right. Jeremy Spencer. Always thought Fleetwood and McVie were like, kind of like my, my heroes and really always admired their perseverance. Like, you know, they kind of kept doing it. Yeah. No, no matter what, even when they had to find, you know, when Peter Green went off the right. deep end, they... They got Bob Welch. And they, they got Bob. Christine, and I've Christine got all those Bean. records. And then yeah. they got Christine in the band. Yeah. And I, those records are in my collection from when I was, you know, yeah. 17 or whatever. So I'm like, okay, Bob Welch. Yeah, great. I'm doing it. So he had a record that just came out. 
So I run down there. I run out to the store and I get, you know, I'm learning three songs or something. And I run down to the SIR and uh, I walk in there and Mick Fleetwood's there and Bob. Bob's going to play bass and Mick's playing drums. And we just jammed for like three hours. And we hit it off great, all of us. Yeah. I became uh, good friends with Bob. Bob hired me and, uh, and, and also with Mick. It yeah. just, we just kind of hit it off, me and him. So anyhow, I joined Bob's band and we I made a few records with him. We toured like crazy. Bob had, you know, had some big hits at that time. Mm -hmm. Ebony Eyes and uh, Sentimental Lady and uh, I don't know why I can't think of the yeah. other titles, but he had, he had a number of hits. And, uh, and we, you know, we went out there and toured like crazy. And that was such a great time too, because, you know, that would have been 70. Uh, eight, seventy nine, and we, we we opened for Heart when just when they exploded. Mm -hmm. We did a big, long string of dates with them. They were great people, great fun, great shows. We opened tons of Fleetwood Mac stadium shows. Uh, we played at Cal Jam too, which was like, at the time, just in the the biggest show ever. It was like two hundred and sixty thousand people there. Uh, we played with. Uh, Foreigner, who was a new band at the time, you know, uh, and anyhow, and, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I started to get integrated into the L.A. scene a little bit more. I did a record with a guy named Danny Duma. Okay. Wonderful, talented guy. He passed away about five years ago. Um, it was kind of part of that scene a little bit, that Fleetwood Mac crowd. And, uh, you know, I got to... Uh, I worked with Randy Meisner from the Eagles for a little while. Wow. Just different stuff, some sessions, did records for with a few people, started to get uh, you know, a little bit into the studios. <clears throat> and then Mick Mick and I were friends and we would hang out sometimes and jam at his house. Which for me was like you know, I'm jamming with Mick Fleetwood. Yeah. I grew up listening to Mick. I always thinking, what a shuffler. You know, yeah. him and McVie, like, oh, man. Absolutely. So, and he had this crazy idea that he wanted to do a record in Africa. And this was, you know, sort of like a late night discussion, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. It would be like, I, just, I don't know, I just want to go to Africa and we'd like to get a bunch of drummers over there. And maybe we could bring like a ton of guitars and tune, tune them to open tune. You know, it was like eccentric, nutty ideas. Get kids to all strum. And, you know, and I'd be like. I'll go, <laughs> take me, I'll tune the guitar. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, just out of the blue, maybe a year later, I get a phone call from his uh, office, his assistant, and, and she says, uh, Mick has a record deal with uh, a label and, they're and he's doing the African project, so he wants you to go. Starts laying out this stuff. You, you need to go start getting your inoculations, Right. And meet him in Ghana. He's on tour right now. He's in Australia. He's going to meet you there. You, he needs you to go to his thing and get some of his guitars together because he was collecting some fine guitars. Work up some music. Bring a few ideas. Mix a drummer. You're going to be the music guy to try and translate music mm -hmm. notes and whatever. 
So this is what happens. I get on a plane. Uh, at that point, at the very last minute, he, he decided to bring a bass player, which was a great idea. And, he, and you've got George Hawkins, who I had known from Hollow Notes. And Kenny Loggins used to play tour together. George was Kenny Loggins' bass player. So all of a sudden, yeah, George Hawkins, I know that guy. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we got on good, as a matter of fact. So I meet uh, Mick and George in Ghana, West Africa. Have no idea what we're going to do there, but we're the the plan is we're bringing all the recording equipment and tape, and guitars and amps, and there's apparently an old film studio which was been uh, sitting for years, but it has a soundstage and we're going to use it to make a record. So we did. We we went there. We spent six weeks. It was uh, it was an incredible adventure. I, I it would take me. I could talk about it for hours, so I, I just try and edit it down to, uh, uh, it was probably the most amazing musical adventure in my life. It was in 1980. We didn't know what we were walking into. It turned out we were walking into like a undiscovered musical wonderland that's a part of Ghanaian culture. So like, you go to a place like Ghana, it's not like they're musicians. It's just everyone's a musician. <laughs> it's their life. It's part of their culture. So everybody sings, everybody dances, everybody, you know, it's just so, uh, you know, there were some bands we went to see in their backyard, which is like, you know, very, very poor uh, third world kind of shanty stuff. And then we'd bring these people into this film studio and try and play with them which worked a few times. And sometimes it would be like, they, you know, we're putting headphones on people who've literally at that time, you know, they never seen headphones or shoes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so anyhow, that was, uh, I started to work with Mick and I did a little bit on his next record, but that African adventure was amazing. So I guess through all that, I got to know Christine McVie a little bit. Okay. So we toured a lot and we became friends. My wife and I and Christine's then uh, boy, bo boyfriend, uh, uh, we would hang out. And so I'm working on some demos. I'm kind of trying to figure out how to write songs and whatnot. And Mick gave me some tape after the African thing. And, and I wrote a song also that was on the, that's on that record. Uh, that's a good song. And, and I think he thought, you know, you should be writing more. And he gave me a bunch of tape, had some tape left after this thing, brought like a hundred reels of tape and said, go uh, get, see, you know, go put something on this tape. So I'm trying to figure out how to write songs and I'm making a demo. I got a little studio time at a place in California. So I played for Christine one night, we were at her house and she said, I, I love this song. I want to sing on it. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> You want to sing on my demo, yeah. backups, yeah. right? Is that what you're saying? And she said, yeah, let's go. So, yeah. okay. So Christine came and sang backups on my demo and was, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, Christine's just a wonderful lady, uh, really unassuming and, and a wonderful voice. And so a little while later, you know, she said, I, I have to make a solo record. It's a contractual thing. 
I don't really want to make a solo record. I'm not like a solo kind of artist. I'm a band person. So she says, would you help me put a band together and write the record? And I, I, I like went, well, let me think about it for a while. I'll let you know, because you know, I'm kind of busy right now, collecting unemployment and trying to get a gig. <laughs> <laughs> so it was one of the, it was, it was uh, probably another for me moment of yeah. Christine McVie, look at the hairs on my arm, just yeah. asked me to write a record with her and help her put a band together. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. When do we start? So that was another thing that was uh, really wonderful for me and a great experience. So we, we, you know, we did exactly that. We, we got a great band together. George Hawkins played bass, myself on guitar. Uh, we auditioned a few drummers. Her producer, Russ Teitelman, suggested that we try Steve Ferroni, who, who had just at that point come out of the average white band. Right. And, you know, I remember thinking, well, Steve Ferroni, yeah, I've heard some of his stuff. He's, he's pretty upscale, man. He's way uptown. Mm -hmm. And we're probably looking for a Fleetwood Mac-ish meat and potatoes mm -hmm. beat man, you know, to lay it down. But, okay, we'll try Steve. So we ran into a studio one night with a couple of songs we'd written and set up with Steve. And that just went like, yeah. you know, okay, that's the guy. Yeah. You know, it just gelled. So we went to uh, Montreux, Switzerland, and uh, recorded a record, which was an amazing adventure also. Uh, you know, probably did uh, most of the record in three weeks. You know, these things work like this, you know. We, we had songs written, Christine and I had, had, you know, locked ourselves down in our house and written all kinds of songs. We had a, a good amount of material, pretty well prepared in that sense. And we had a great band and a great producer. And we went to a great place and a great studio, a great engineer. And, uh, you know, we cut the record. I think we got most of it in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then, you know, it was a matter of finishing a few lyrics. And then so uh, I remember at one point we, we took a little break and Christine said, well, you know, I'm, I think I'll call, uh, why don't I call Eric and see if he can maybe play guitar on one of these songs. And, I, and I'm like, you mean Eric Clapton? She goes, yeah. And I said, you know, you know him? <laughs> <laughs> and, and also Steve Winwood. She says, well, yeah, I know Steve. I, I think she maybe went to art school with him or something. And uh, so this kind of thing, you know, it was the first time I got to see this deal about the British rock and roll people of that era. It's almost like it's such a different thing than American rock and roll. First of way? all, well, first in the most significant way that they all showed us our own American roots music, what was That's under true. our noses. Because yeah. as, you know, white kids and whatever growing up in America, I guess that was like black music and, and we weren't listening to it. Right. So not, you know, we didn't know from, you know, Big Bill Brunsey and Robert Johnson or Sonny Boy Williamson, but the British did. Right. And they brought it to us. So that's a big deal. Certainly. The other big deal was just that, uh, and, and I've worked with a couple of British of Brits, you know, well-known, like Rod Stewart, same kind of thing. 
where you kind of get this thing after a while where it's like they all know each other. It's yeah. almost like they all went to school together. Yeah. You're all friends. Like you and Brad went yeah. to college together. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, it was like Christine said, well, yeah, I know Eric. Sure. Yeah. Steve and I went to art school together or something. Yeah. I'm going, Steve Winwood? Really? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, we went to uh, Steve Winwood's, Russ, the producer, and I stayed in the pub up the road from Steve's house. Mm -hmm. Christine stayed with Steve and his wife. They wrote a song. We spent a week hanging out with Steve Winwood, working in his studio every day. Wonderful guy uh, and wonderful experience, you know, for a guy like me. He grew, grew on, you know, listening to traffic in the Spencer Davis group. Yeah. Uh, and then working with Steve Winwood, you know, yeah. like whatever, 15, 20 years later. And he's the nicest man in the world. Yeah. You know, like we hung out. He took me in his uh, library, uh, had a beautiful old English home with dynamite stereo put on Ray Charles, you know. And I, I just remember sitting there one day going, I'm listening to Ray Charles with my buddy Steve Winwood. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this isn't bad. Yeah, it's not bad at all. So getting back to Eric Clapton, there's a, a shot of you, you know, that I've that I've seen that's that shows you with and you look like you're uh, you look like you're a little kid because you're you look like you're a little bit giddy and you're and you're you're sitting next to to Eric. Yeah. And he's got Blackie there sitting on the on the couch with him. Yeah. And uh, so so tell me about, you know, get getting to meet Clapton and getting to, you know, I guess hear him play on the session and such. Yeah, well I guess I was giddy. Because, you know, you'd have to be. I, I yes. Eric Clapton was like many players of my era and yours. Yeah. One of the big reasons I play guitar. Absolutely. And I, man, there was a time where I was shedding Clapton and the Mail record and the first couple Cream records. You know, I, I used to know it note for note. That and Hendrix and a few other things. But uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, that was just pretty much just like you described it. So Christine called him, said, I'm, I'm making a record. Would you come play on it? And I just remember that he said, yeah, I like to work in this one room at Olympic in London. We're in Europe anyhow. And uh, so we uh, go into Olympic Studios and it's a it's one of the funky little rooms with like carpet on the wall. I mean, it's, you know, it looks like somebody's garage studio mm -hmm. but across the hall is like the famous olympic studio a or whatever it's called right. where the stones cut beggars banquet and the who cut stuff and i think the yeah. beatles cut some stuff and you know i don't remember who was working there at the time but i i walked in at one point had an old surround console gigantic uh big room wooden floor famous rock and roll records cut there uh Anyhow, uh, we're in Olympic, and uh, we're hanging out, waiting for Eric to show. And I walk out in the lobby, and he comes walking up the front steps. And, and I think he has two gig bags over each shoulder and two Fender Tweed twin amps in each hand, and he's walking up the steps. Wow. And I, and I see him through the glass, and I go, holy shit, I think that's Eric. And he's, so I walk out there and I go, can I give you a hand? Yeah. I said, you know, even I have cartage. I, yeah. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Let me help you. you know? yeah. So I help him carry his stuff in. And he's, a, again, wonderful guy, you know, just a lovely man. 
he just kind of listened through the record and, you know, it was like anything you want to play on. And he picked a track and, and of course, and, and, you know, he also, you know, looked to me and said, you know, I love your playing, you play great. And I was like, it was another one of those like, yeah, pinch me moments. Yeah. All I got's the picture. Yeah. But it's uh, a great picture. But I just, you know, I think I said, well, you know, I, you probably noticed I stole most of it from you. And yeah. he said, yeah, well, I, I stole most of it from some other guys, too. And you probably noticed yeah. that. And uh, it was a pretty magical day just to kind of hang with him. Yeah. He was like, you know, gosh, he said, let me play on that one. Example was out in the studio. He sat in the room on the couch, like, you know, where we took that picture and just played, did maybe two passes. So he just had Blackie into a Tweed Twin. That's it. And he just cranked it up. Just played. Wasn't really cranked up. It was kind of a, more of a subdued, beautiful yeah. tone. He played beautiful on a song Christine and I wrote called The Challenge. And, uh, you know, just did a couple of ta uh, passes. And, and Russ, the producer, said, hey, I think we got it. We'll, we'll pick a, a few spots, but it's there. Yeah. And he was right. And uh, so, you know, that was really the only, uh, my experience with Eric, he, he was, it was interesting because I, we're talking, you know, like, like guitar players do. Uh, and I think he complimented me on the sound on that track that he played on. And it was a Strat. I used to have this really cool Strat. I don't know what the hell that thing was, but it had a hot rod paint job, had maybe a differently radiused rosewood fingerboard. It was really cool looking, sounded great, loved that thing. Somebody had broken into the studio in Montreux and stole it. Mm. And that's the only thing they stole, by the way. I mean, we're talking about a recording studio full of all kinds of stuff. Right. I had all kinds of amps, guitars, valuable microphones, the whole deal. Someone saw that Strat somehow and, and wanted it. broke in and they stole it. So I'm telling Eric about it. I said, yeah, that's my Strat. I just got stolen like a week ago. And, and he offered to, he said, well, you know, I could probably help you find one. And uh, I think I had just bought a Squire in London. Mm -hmm. I went out to the store and I bought a like a hundred pound Squire. It was a pretty nice guitar, actually, mm -hmm. with a maple neck. But uh, I, I, for some stupid reason, I, I, I didn't take him up on his offer. I kind of felt like he doesn't really mean that. Yeah. He doesn't want me calling him. Eric Clavin doesn't want me to like, call him and bug him like, hey, could you help me find a strat? <laughs> you know, the guy you just met with Christine. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, uh, but he was that nice of a guy, you know, that, that, that friendly and just uh, very cool to, to be able to meet, you know, your, your, your heroes, your uh, people who you thought were great and have them not be assholes. Because so many people are, yeah, you know, but, you That's know, they like true. meet Clapton and go, hey, what a great guy. And Steve Winwood and go, what a lovely person. Yeah. And, uh, and again, this British thing, you know, Ronnie Wood, same way. Yeah. So I, I, when I played with Rod, we played with Rod Stewart for like six years. Uh, and uh, we played in Vancouver. And John Baldry, I don't know if you know who that is, a guy named yes. Long John Baldry, yes. had, had a couple of records in the 70s, had been living in Vancouver. And this is kind of cool because right when I moved to L.A., uh, I just joined Bob Welch's band. I mean, like, 
you know, Wednesday. And John Baldry calls me, who I'm like, I'm a big fan of John Baldry. I had his record with, uh, in an English accent, don't try to lay no bougie woogie on the king of rock and roll. I don't know if you remember that one. It's kind of an FM radio hit. Yeah. It was an awesome groove. And that was John Baldry. Had Mickey Waller on drums. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, I get this call from John Baldry. He wants, wants to meet me. Come, could you come to my hotel? So I go down there and I meet him. And he said, I, I saw you with Hall & Oates in London. I want you in my band. And I went. I just joined Bob Welch's band and Mick Fleetwood, and um, I, I can't do it. I'd love it. I appreciate it. Anyhow, Baldry comes to see us in Vancouver with Rod because okay. they're old friends. Right. It's and it. I see him at backstage, and he comes in. He says, hello. We're flying home with, with Rod, you know, our private jet. And Rod has a video that he's watching of uh, the Newport Jazz Festival Some take from it from 1968 that John gave and he starts to tell me this story which just freaks me out he says you know I had this album for a while when I was like 16 he says John gave it to me and he started to tell me you know like he was my mentor and not only me but like Jeff and Ronnie and you know I can't think of who else probably Mac Ian McLagan uh, maybe even Keith and Mick. I don't know. Those guys are a little bit before the, that crew. But he says, John gave me this record, and I, it was mine for two weeks. And I was to keep the, the jacket straight, and I couldn't scratch it or mess it up, and then I needed to return it to him because it went to Jeff next. And then it went to Ronnie. And I'm going, Jeff Beck? And he goes, well, yeah. yeah. We all grew up together. And Ronnie. And, you know, we, we used to play soccer together or whatever I don't yeah. know but he tells me the story it's the same record and John Baldry was kind of their guy who was turning them on to the American blues music I like their guru their yeah music guru and so yeah. apparently and I'm certainly not the expert on this but there were a few of these guys Baldry was one uh, Alexis Corner was another and uh, maybe John Mayo yes who was probably another and these are the guys who, you know, found Eric Clapton and Peter Green and all, and all these guys that, you know, we could, you know, that we all just love. And, um, you know, Paige. <laughs> um, and, they, and they told him, you know, you know, this is what you need to listen to. This is, you know, this is, you know. These a couple of guys, but, but amazingly that, that they were kind of all grew up together and almost came from the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, when you... Have Rod Stewart telling you that, yeah, John Baldry was the guy who turned me and Ronnie Wood and Jeff Beck and, you know, a few other guys yeah. onto this record. And it was the only record in the country. It was the only version of it. And we were all to give it back to him because yeah. it needed to go to the next guy. Yeah. And this was a very important thing. Yeah. And he's telling me that story. I just kind of, you know, I just remember that as being like, wow, yeah. isn't that amazing? It is. Well, Todd. Let's take a break for a minute and let's come back and let's talk more about uh, a little bit more about Christine McVie and also about Rod Stewart. Okay, great. This has been an audio presentation by True Tone, TrueTone.com.